If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to the epistle of 1 Peter. We're going to pick up in verse 7 of chapter 4. We come now to um, one of the better known passages in 1 Peter, and there are several, but this is, uh, has a phrase in it that you've probably heard before. We'll get there when he says, uh, above all, remain fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Uh, but before that, he says uh, some other things that were, are quite startling. And uh, so I want to talk about those as well. So if you have your Bibles, First uh, Peter chapter 4, verse 7. And he begins this uh, part of the, the epistle with an announcement that he says so matter-of-factly um, that he just states it. And then he moves on very quickly to the then what or so what now kind of uh, question. But for us, it, it causes us to pause just for a moment. It might have caused the, uh, the original readers of this text to pause for just a moment. Um, and it's certainly arguably not the best sermon opener um, that you've ever heard. If I just came out this morning and said, the end of all things is at hand. Well, that doesn't sound positive but well um, but that's what he says in verse 7 the end of all things is at hand and then he just moves on but if you're like a lot of people uh, like me included you, you think can, can we just hold on just a second here uh, brother Peter can we just back up for just a moment uh, I want to talk about what you just said <clears throat> and Peter he just says it, gives not a whole lot of explanation. And because we are who we are in the day and age in which we live, and we're, we're uh, affected by the culture, particularly the Christian culture around us, this is one of those phrases that becomes something we sort of latch on to. And if we are not very careful, we'll begin to ask questions of this short phrase that it was never intended to answer. And we'll begin to focus on it, and then we'll, we'll actually feel the need, like some people do. We have to somehow rescue God from having any appearance of a mistake. And we have to rescue God's Word from having any appearance of error. And so we begin to do sort of theological and interpretive gymnastics, trying to get around this simple phrase that where Peter simply says, the end of all things is at hand. Because what's the question? What do you mean? Let, let's talk about this a second, Peter. What do you mean by all things? Are you saying like the end of all things? Like everything, the end of the earth, the end of the world, the end of reality as we know it? Um, clearly, uh, I, I think what he's talking about is the end of all things. It's the culmination of all of history. Now, he may have had in mind uh, or had some insight, obviously, from uh, being inspired by the Holy Spirit that things were going to come very quickly to an end for Jerusalem as they knew it. It was going to be destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans who were going to leave no stone upon another and the whole city will be destroyed. And so it's certainly an end of all things as the Hebrews would have known it. And there's possibly an inclination of, of that, but I think he's talking about the end of all things as in all things. And one of the things that we get... Uh, we, we get confused about in our culture is the difference between Hebrew thought about history and all things and reality and the way the Greeks thought about history and reality. See, the Greeks believe that history is like a big wheel. It's a big circle. It goes in cycles. And it's destined to do that forever. 
And there was no necessarily an ending of history. The earth and all they knew and all they saw, they believed would be here pretty much forever. It will go through cycles, but it's certainly going to remain. In Hebrew thought, it is very linear. God is moving from a specific starting point and He is moving toward intentionally. He's moving history and the rest of the world at His own will and His own desire for His own purpose. And He's moving to a point B. And there is a point B at which it all comes to an end. It all culminates in the Lordship of Christ, Christ, where all things, Paul says, are put in subjection to Him. And so in Hebrew thought, God started at point A, He's moving towards point B, and point being the last day, the day of the Lord, the culmination of all things. This world has an expiration date. In many cultures, although not every, many cultures in our, in our world have sort of discerned this. You called back um, in 2012, the Mayans had said we were, you know, that's when the earth was going to uh, end. And of course, they weren't real specific about how that was supposed to happen. And <clears throat> if you're like me and you stay up in the wee hours in the morning, going from conspiracy theory to conspiracy theory on the Internet, uh, there is a, a, a theory out there that the world did actually end on 2012 and what we're living in now is a simulation of some kind. Well, it's a pretty good simulation, I guess, if it is, but you have these ideas that, that the world somehow is ultimately going to come to some conclusion, that there is a reason behind this, which, which makes sense because God is a God of order and reason and purpose, and He effectuates all things to His own will for His own purpose towards His own end, which is His own glory. Now, the world has an expiration date. But what we desperately want to know from Peter at this point, because he says, the end of all things. Everything. The end of all things. This reflects how you and I need to view this life. There should be within the New Testament believer this idea and this understanding that everything we see around us is transient. This reality, what you see, what you touch, the tangible, the visible, everything that we experience in this life is nothing but a transition. In fact, Jesus said this way, it's life is what? A vapor. It's here today, gone tomorrow. And when he says that, he's not talking about your life, which is absolutely true, by the way. He's talking about the world and everything you see in it. This is nothing compared to eternity. That ought to be our understanding. We have people of plenty talking about investing in the future as though they have one. You don't have one. And here's why. We have a pandemic. Yeah, I know, I've heard all about it. It's all we've heard since 2020. You know, there's, there's another pandemic. It ended the world a long time ago. And here's the thing about this pandemic. The mortality rate for this pandemic is 100% standing, standing steady. Has never changed. Pandemic of sin entered the world, death entered with it. And the mortality rate thereon has been 100%. There has been nobody in history, and there will be nobody in history, that lives forever. Lest Christ should come before you pass. So you think of Brother Peter. Let's say he met Jesus, um, and we don't know for sure. They, they didn't give dates and birth dates of the disciples. Uh, and thank heavens they didn't, or Hallmark would have 12 more holidays on their calendar. But 
we can assume Peter was probably mid to late 20s when he met Jesus. He's already grown and apparently had a family, and so he's, he's uh, working with his brother as a fisherman. So if he was 20, early 20, mid 20s when he met Jesus, then he spent three years with Jesus, 25 to 28, maybe, when Jesus was crucified. By the time he wrote this letter, he may have been in his 40s. But pretty soon, Peter himself is going to be martyred for his faith. So if Peter, we go back and look at this, if, if Peter lived about to the, the amount of time they suspected he had based on his writings and so forth, he might have seen 60, late 50s. Okay. He's been dead now for 2,000 years. He's already been dead 40 times longer than he ever lived. Because this life is but a vapor. It is here today and gone tomorrow. And investing in the future of this world is like investing in the Titanic. It has an expiration date and it will not last. And Peter's simply making the point the end of all things is at hand. Now, what we get to though is this phrase. What does he mean is at hand? Because it looks like he's saying it's pretty immediate. That the end of all things, that this day of the Lord, the culmination of history, the rolling up of the, the scrolls of time, as the Bible talks about, uh, that he, God is uh, about to wrap it all up. In fact, uh, the way he says it, it's not just that this, the time clock has started ticking, it's done, it's over. Not only is there, there a clock ticking, it has run out, it is at hand, the end of all things has come. So what do, we, what do we do with that then? Because it looks kind of like if Peter was thinking that, it's been 2,000 years since he wrote that. That doesn't seem to us very much like at hand. Well, we do as well to remember it is also Peter that said a year, a day is as a thousand years unto the Lord. And he understood that time to God is not time to us. And he understood that this life in comparison to eternity is nothing. It's not even a blip on the radar. It is momentary. And the end is always near. And, and Peter, along with Paul and the other disciples, the whole New Testament just is replete with this sort of anticipation that the end of time is not far. And here's what we need to understand. The end of time is not far. Say, well, that's what Peter said too, Brother William, and, and he was right. You say, well, you don't know, maybe another 2,000 years. That's right, not far. Not far in the economy of eternity, not far in the understanding, the experience of God who is not limited by time, who lives in the eternal now and the present. Not far. We're putting all our stock in what happens in this life. We're banking on the wrong things. But he says, the end of all things is at hand. And he moves on. Because he wants to tell us in light of the brevity of this experience. So regardless of whether we get caught up in, in the exactitude. And that's what we ask of the scripture that it's not ever meant to address. The exactitude of when God will wrap up all things. The definite pinpoint of time at which Christ will return and assume control of all things and history will be wrapped up in God's glory. The, the Bible is never meant 
to pinpoint that for us. In fact, uh, when the disciples come to Jesus and say, is it at this time, when he's talking about the end times, he, the disciples say, is it at that time or is it this time that you're going to restore your kingdom? And you know what Jesus says? Well, two things. First of all, he says, I don't know. Only the fathers know, father knows, and that's not for you to know. Now, it's ironic to me that the very thing that the Bible says we're not supposed to know, we spend a great deal of trying time trying to figure out. And it's almost like, you know, if, if your parents say uh, you can't look in the box, that's the only thing you desperately want to do as a child. Whatever we're, we're told not to, suddenly it's like, oh, they're hiding something. I just, I have to look. And God has said, this is not for you to know. And yet we spend enormous resources of time and energy trying to pinpoint exactly when Jesus will come exactly when the, the last days are. In fact, if you go to a Christian bookstore and look on the bookshelves, many of the books on that bookshelf have to do with the end times, the eschaton, the eschatology. Everybody has this burning desire to know. And the fact is, you will not figure it out. Because the New Testament message is this. It's already come. The end of all things is at hand. Today, yes, because he could come in a moment's time. There is nothing that I see in Scripture left where, you know, well, this prophecy hasn't happened yet. Jesus can come any second now. And he could have come any minute when Peter wrote this. And Peter didn't know for sure the exactitude of when. All he knew is we better live in the brevity of this life, understanding exactly how brief it is, because we are nothing more than a blip on a radar compared to God's economy and eternity. So that's the New Testament message we see over and over again, that this life is short, this whole experience, this whole world is passing away. And so we live not according to this world, but we live for something much more eternal. Now, if we don't know for sure, I think that's Peter's message to us. We live in a constant understanding that he could come in the next second. Now, people very often say to me, and they probably do to you as well, because it's just, you know, we're church people. They'll say things like, uh, do you think we're living in the last days, Brother way? Or sometimes if they're very certain, they won't even ask, they'll just tell you, we're living in the last days. And like, you know what? Yes, we are. And so was Peter and those to whom he wrote. We have been since Christ came and was crucified and rose again. You have been in the last days. And he will come for his children. And we don't know when. You know why? Well, God has said it's not for you to know, but why? Why won't God tell us? We live expectantly. So we live with anticipation that any moment I could be called home to spend eternity with my Christ. And so I better, number one, do what I need to be doing. That's what Jesus said, right? Do the will of the Father while it is day. You don't know how much time you have. And if you did, this is what you would do. I'm just certain of it. You would wait. You would wait until the day before. If, if you're like me, you'd wait just a few hours before because I procrastinate everything. But you would wait until just before we knew that Christ was coming and say, you know, now I better get I better get right with him because he's coming like tomorrow. 
And this is what I this is what I inevitably do. Pray for pray for me this week. Maybe I'll do better. Uh, Tiff's going down to see her mom. Leave today. She can be gone for I don't know ten or twelve days, something like that. Uh, and and what I do is I tell myself at the beginning of the week I am not going to wait and let the house get overwhelming before she comes home. I'm not going to do that. I'm just I'm going to wash dishes when I use them. I'm going to have it cleaned up. Just just keeping it clean is easier than cleaning it. I tell myself that. But inevitably, I, I will spend the last moments before I go to the airport to pick her up cleaning the kitchen because I put it off. And that's what we would do if we knew the exact date Jesus was coming back. We would wait to the last minute to clean ourselves up and try to get right with Him in the last minute. And Jesus says, I don't want you at the last minute. I want you every minute from now on. Period. The time has come. The end of all things is at hand. Now live for me. You don't know. I think what Peter is trying to say is he's picking up kind of on this idea we talked about last week. Remember when he said the time is past has been sufficient for you to indulge in the desires of the flesh. Past has been sufficient for you. That time has passed. Now we're at the end of all things. Therefore. Now, that's the important part, really. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore. Now, if we stop with just the phrase, then we get caught up in all kinds of things. There are people that, um, there, there are a group of people that develop their own theology uh, from that quote and others that, that they would say, look, Peter surely understood that Jesus was about to come again very quickly. And then they pick other passages that talk about that in general terms. And they, they say that Jesus did indeed return in 70 AD um, and somehow we missed it or so forth. Anyway, they, they develop a whole whole theory and a whole theology regarding the end times based on these kinds of praise because they say, look, the Bible can't be wrong. Peter's not wrong. He's just looking at it from a heavenly perspective that you and I have to be willing to allow to just boggle our minds. And here's why. You and I cannot possibly understand in the finite, the finiteness of our minds everything that's going on spiritually around us. We are given some clues in Scripture that there are things going on around us that would just cause us to be perplexed and scratch our head. How is it? In fact, uh, Brett was telling me this morning, we were looking at a couple of passages where in First Chronicles, it says that the Lord's anger burned against the children of Israel, so He incited David to number the people. Then you get over to... Um, you get over to Samuel, I may have that flip-flopped actually. Samuel first says, you know, God caused David to do that. You get over to First Chronicles, the exact same event, it says, and Satan stood up against David and incited him to number the people. Well, that's concerning because one says God did that. The other says Satan did that. And well, wait, what's going on? There are heavenly realities you and I can't possibly understand. We get some insight from Job where Satan stood up in the presence of God. How does that happen? Not sure. But anyway, in the presence of God and he accuses Job. And so Job says, you know what? Go ahead. You attack him. He will not deny me. And so what happens? It was Satan that went and caused Job all the problems he experienced. Well, God allowed it. 
So in, in what sense, I don't know, the, the anger of God burned against the children of Israel. So God allowed Satan to incite David to number the people. You think, well, how's we don't understand the exact exchange and how all these things take place. We do know God's sovereign and good and holy, and he's never not in control. God uses Satan even for his own purpose. Well, then I thought God and Satan were on, you know, opposite and equal teams. Not even close. Not even close. Satan, for all his grandeur and earthly splendor and so forth and so on, he is a pawn in God's hands. Why? Because God brings himself glory. If you ask most people in the church, say, I'm going to give you some opposites. Black, you say white. Okay. If I say God, there is no opposite because opposite implies equal. This God on one hand, Satan on the other. No, it's God. Period. There is none other like him. Not even in the opposite sense. It's not like God is ultimate love and Satan's ultimate evil. No, Satan's not ultimate anything. God is ultimate everything. It's not... You know, it's not two forces, opposite and equal. It's God. And He is moving, even in the heavenly realm, He is moving angelic hosts, even Satan, to His own purpose, by His own will. So, when His anger burned against the children of Israel, Satan came and incited David to number the people and take a census. This is kind of like the story where God used the Philistines to punish the Israelites. And this always kind of just, thought, how can God do that? Well, because God can, because He's sovereign. I don't understand it, but He is sovereign. Here's what He did. He caused the Philistines to come down and, and, and take the Israelites into bondage and you know, wreak havoc on the Israelites. And God is very specific that God did that. He used the Philistines to do that. And then you know what he, did? he turned around and punished the Philistines for doing it to His people. Wait a minute. That God is sovereign and holy. And I don't understand the intricacies of the mind and workings of the sovereign holy. And neither do you. So when you see passages like this, the end of all things is at hand. And yet it's been 2,000 years. Brother William, doesn't that make you doubt? What makes me doubt my brain? It makes me doubt my ability to understand the sovereignty and goodness of God and all that. But no, it doesn't make me doubt his scripture. I am fully resigned to the fact that there are things about God that my mind will never get around. And I am joyful and glad that it is so. Because were it not, He would be a very small God indeed. So the all, end of all things are at hand. Therefore, and this is the real heart of the matter. And I'm only pausing because this is the real heart of the matter in the bulk of the sermon, but I have no, no idea how long we've been going so far. It may be next week before we pick up there. But, um, okay. Okay. Uh, anyway, I, 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 I apparently suffer from this ailment, and you aren't the only ones to notice. My, my, uh, one of the ladies in my high school class 
that I'm teaching said, uh, well, uh, you obviously like to talk a lot. I said, oh, really? So anyway, um, we'll leave that for today. Next week, the end of all things is at hand. So what? What do we do now? If this life is so brief, what do we do with it? If we're only here but for a moment, what do we do with that moment? Because Peter goes on to talk about some magnificent things that I fully plan to talk about today. He gives us some very specific instructions. And if nothing else, uh, sometimes in Scripture, I like seeing some specific instructions. Because if you're like me, it's like, what does God expect? What does God want from us? What is it we can do? We, we, we like to do, right, for God. So he's going to give us some very specific instructions, okay? One of which is this wonderful passage where he says, remain fervent in your love for one another. Next week we'll talk about what he means by that. We'll talk about some of the other things he says we ought to be doing. But this week, and here, here's your homework. I think somebody said some my homework So last week. So here's your homework for this week. This week at some point... And it does not, uh, it doesn't have to be your pastor because I, you are such a loving and gracious and patient, understanding congregation. I'm encouraged a lot by people in the congregation. Okay, So not necessarily to me, but to one another this week, do something assertive, intentional, active to love your brothers and sisters in this body. It could be send them a little note. Could be send them a text. Maybe a maybe a phone call. It it not specific about what you do, but do something that says this person, I am being active and fervent in my love for you as a brother or sister in Christ. You never never underestimate the power of just an encouraging text. I have had Sundays and you know where I left here thinking, well tell you what, the best thing about that sermon was when the end was at hand. Because, you know, every Sunday there's three sermons, right? You got the, the one you wrote, the one you preached, and the one you fix on the way home. And so, I, sometimes you feel this disquiet, and then it seems like God will just allow, I'll just get a text from somebody that will say something encouraging. They will say something about it spoke to them, or God used it to show them something. You cannot overestimate the power of just simply reaching out to your brothers and sisters. So this week, be fervent in your love for one another. And that, that way next week, you won't have so much repenting to do. All right. Appreciate your patience. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.